Well, hello. My name is Dustin Maddox, if we have not met yet. And I'm so excited that you are here this morning as we continue in our sermon series called The Ultimate Summer Playlist. And we are exploring in this series songs, both sacred and secular, that help us listen to the divine heartbeat, the, the, the beat of God's love for us, and that open us to consider and ponder questions of meaning and significance and hope and love and joy and all of these things that help connect us more deeply to the love and presence of God in our lives. And today we are continuing by looking at a song that uh, was the, when I, when I was talking to people about this series, the first thing that was said was, oh, you're going to do a song from this band, aren't you? And I was like, yeah, of course, I'm going to. And that band is U2. And if you have been around here for a while, uh, you, you might know that U2 has a, has a bit of a soft spot in the heart of the life of this place, uh, just because many people love U2 and have seen them in concert. Uh, but one of, one of our own, uh, Tim Neufeld, has written a book on U2, uh, so he sort of likes them. And following his influence, uh, I thought I would pick up on one of their songs that I find meaningful and love, and it's this song, I Will Follow. And this is their first, their, their debut hit off their debut album, Boy, uh, from 1980. Look at young Bono right there. So much hair, uh, just looking great with that youthful energy. And I... This song captures the essence, I would say, of U2's early sound and also put them on the sort of uh, pathway towards their future success. It's got an energetic rhythm, uh, an anthemic guitar, you know, the edge, just unchained, doing great things. And it sets the stage um, for Bono's passionate vocals. I mean, it contains all of the elements that you come to know and love of a U2 song. So, I Will Follow is the lyrics, they speak of loyalty and determination and the pursuit of meaning and conviction. Bono has a, a, a heartfelt delivery of these lyrics that you'll see and hear. And the chorus, uh, the, the lyrics are in your bulletin if you uh, happen to grab one on your way in, or you can look along at some of the lyrics that are, that are next to you, but the chorus is simply, I will follow. And it becomes the sort of mantra of sorts that invites everyone to join in. I Will Follow is a significant milestone in U2's career, and the song's impact has extended beyond its initial release, influencing generations 
and inspiring countless fans, myself included. So, as we listen to this song, uh, we are going to listen to and watch a version of I Will Follow that you two performed live at the Red Rocks Amphitheater uh, outside of Denver, Colorado. It's a beautiful place. And uh, to see you two live is really, I, I mean, next to Milt and Karen, it's to kind of be in the presence of a transcendent experience. And this captures, uh, I think, just the, the heartbeat of you 2 So let's watch and feel free to clap along, sing along, uh, stand up, you know, dance, do whatever you need. Let the Spirit lead as the Spirit will. So let's listen to I Will Follow.
when I rewatched that this week, I was struck by the fact that, I mean, it's a, it's a little bit dark watching it on this screen, uh, but you can, you can tell as you, as you watch these people at this concert, uh, they're doing the strangest thing, which is they're just, no one is holding up a cell phone and recording it. <laughs> they're just experiencing the concert and the music. You should try it sometime. It's great fun. Anyways, so as, as I've reflected on uh, the meaning of the lyrics in this song and what it might have to say to us and, and some of the questions that uh, this song probes in our lives is, uh, you know, you can, you can think about these lyrics of I will follow in a, in a couple of different ways of who is making this promise to follow? Who is the person or people who are doing the walking away and who might be following them? Is it, is it us? Is it someone that we love? Or, you know, there, there's a couple of different ways that we could turn the gem and analyze the meaning of, of this song. But when I sit with it, and when, when I sit with myself, I, I recognize in my own humanity, at times, there is a temptation, maybe even a tendency or a proclivity, in, in difficult moments, in relationships with others, or in particular, with with and in the life of faith, that there's this temptation to walk away. The great uh, British uh, journalist and theologian G.K. Chesterton said that, um, I'm paraphrasing here, but the, the way of Jesus has not been tried and found wanting. It's been tried and found difficult, or it's been found difficult and therefore left untried. Meaning, the way of Jesus is a really challenging way. The life of, of faith in the way of Jesus isn't all rainbows and butterflies. There are moments when following Jesus means that we are called to do things that we naturally and ordinarily wouldn't choose to do except for the fact that we live in relationship to Jesus, which reorients our relationships to others and the world and infuses and calls us to the task of grace and, what, and extending mercy to others when that might be challenging. And there are times when I have walked away from that invitation and so it raises the question, what does Jesus have to say in those moments to us? What does Jesus have to say when you or I, when we walk away from the invitation to follow him? Jesus comes on the scene in the biographies of his life and into our biographies with the invitation to follow. And each and every day and and. Further, each and every moment of each and every day, we are invited to consider that invitation. Will we follow in this circumstance, in this relationship, in, in, in 
in this or that other thing. Whatever it is, that invitation is always in front of us. And when we step away from it and choose to follow our own desires or our own uh, sense of control or whatever it is that might cause us to step away from that, what does Jesus say? What does Jesus do when, when we walk away? And so I, when I think about this, I, my mind immediately goes to the story of Jesus' closest friend. One of the first followers of Jesus was named Peter. And Peter is a figure who sort of looms large in the biographies of Jesus' life for a number of different reasons. But when Jesus invited people to follow him, he had large crowds of people who would follow him around and hear his teaching. But within that, he had a smaller subsection of, of people called disciples or apprentices or students. His, his closest followers, there were 12 of them, who Jesus hand-selected as those people who he believed would be able to, to follow him in the manner of his life, to do the things that he was asking them to do. Jesus called these people to carry out his teachings in their life, and he believed that they were able to do it. And Peter was one of, of these 12. But even within that group of 12, this small group of Jesus' followers, Peter was among the closest three. This sort of select inner group that Jesus would often take with him to reveal things to them or, or to, he entrusted them with higher levels of leadership or responsibility. And Peter was among those. But it was, it was clear that Peter was the, the far and away leader of this group. It's been said that uh, the disciples who were likely around the age of teenagers, uh, that Peter was, was maybe a little bit older, so maybe he was a little bit more mature and wiser than this group, and so maybe for that reason he was just the default leader, but I think Peter had a lot of, of character. I think Jesus saw a lot in Peter that he wanted to entrust his ministry to him after he was uh, not physically present with his disciples. And Peter, I, I, as you kind of familiarize yourself with him, as you read these stories of Jesus' life, you see that Peter wants to step into this responsibility. And Peter is committed and passionate about following Jesus. And there's this point, this sort of turning point, in their relationship and in our relationship with Jesus as we're getting to know him, where Peter and the disciples are with Jesus and Jesus asks them this question, who do the people say that I am? And Peter responds on behalf of them and, and the, the paraphrase is basically, Jesus, you are the one whom God has sent in the, to the world to rescue and renew everything and everyone. And, Peter, and Jesus says to Peter, you got it. This, is, this awareness, this knowledge has been given to you as a gift by God. Now, what you need to understand about what this is going to look like 
is that I, we read in Matthew 16, Jesus says, I uh, am going to have to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. I'm going to be uh, persecuted and uh, have all of these unjust lies leveled against me at the hands of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And then three days later, I'm going to be raised again. And you can imagine in this moment, Jesus' 12 closest followers, who they've given up everything to follow him, to learn from him, to, they've, put all, they've invested all of their hope in this one person who is going to change the world and change their circumstances. And now he's going, to talk, and now he's going off talking about how he is going to suffer and die. And so you see all of the eyes of the disciples kind of turn towards Peter. And Peter pulls Jesus aside. And he says, <laughs> he begins to rebuke him. And Matthew uses a word here that Jesus often uses when Jesus is, uh, is casting demons out of people. It's the only time in the Gospels that this word gets used by someone else who's not actively casting out a demon. And so you, you, you think, you can, you can imagine with Peter, he thinks that Jesus is out of his mind in saying this. And he's like, never. Lord, this will never happen to you. And I think when we think about these sorts of moments, uh, we all have something in our lives that there, some line of never, either personally or when it comes to our ideas about God. God would never be like this. God would never ask this. God would never organize things in such a way that I would have to that. There's this line, this sort of imaginary line of never, and we say we will never cross that line. Or maybe interpersonally or in, in our own selves, we have something in us that we will say, I will never do that. I remember when uh, Robin was pregnant with Beckett, our, 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 our firstborn, I remember thinking of all of the things as a parent that I would never do that my parents did in, their, in our relationship. And uh, some, many of you are smiling because you know where this is going. I've done all of those things. And so what is this dynamic within us? What is this tension? How do we navigate it? And, but it continues. Peter, later on, uh, when this stuff is actually happening, when Jesus is in Jerusalem and all of the momentum is shifting away from Jesus, and it, he is going to be crucified. It's super clear. Like, the army is gathered outside the restaurant where they're eating. And Jesus is saying, hey, remember, I've been saying this. I am going to be crucified, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to raise again. And so Peter's like, all right, well, um, uh, next slide, Caleb. And so Jesus says, hey, this is going to happen, and, and you guys are just going to scatter. You're going to fall away. 
And Peter is like, okay, if this is how it's actually going to go down, Jesus, I will never leave you. Even if everyone else does, I will stick by your side until the bitter end because you have changed everything for me. I'm going to stick with you. And then Jesus says, hey, um, so here's what's going to happen. You are going to deny me three times before the night is over. And again, Peter's like, what? No way. That's absurd. I would never do that. Jump cut to the end of the night. And on three separate occasions, prompted by three different people, as Jesus is being tried and is moving towards being executed, Peter says, I do not know who that man even is. And in an honor and shame culture in which the first century that was a profound reality that they were navigating. Loyalty to, to family relationships or close personal relationships meant everything. And Peter publicly denies Jesus, that he ever even knows. He, I don't even know who that person is. And Mark's biography of Jesus' life has Peter even calling down curses on Jesus. He's like joining in the sort of mob mentality of like, this guy's a, a crock, he's a liar, he's, yeah. He jumps in. He fully distances himself. And in other words, Peter walks away from Jesus. And this dynamic, the writers of Scripture are trying to help us see and understand, is what the Bible imagines when the Bible uses the word sin. Sin we often think of in, in predominantly moral behavior categories, like you should not do this thing. You should not do that thing. And that is certainly included, but the emphasis and the trajectory of those things are all intended to help us see that those things are there because they are going to distort and destroy our relationship with God and with each other. And sin is this dynamic of us disinheriting God from our lives, of us distancing ourselves from even being in the category of relationship with God. And let's put a little bit of a finer point on this. In our time and in our world, when we think of people who deny God, who deny the existence of God and things of, of that nature, we often think of people who are far away from God, maybe who have never been a part of the church or people who live sort of immoral or unjust lives. But the Bible always brings our focus back to the fact that it is often the people who seem to be the closest to God, like Peter, who are the ones who walk away. And I think we have to be honest, those of us who follow Jesus, those of us who might be tempted to say something like Peter says, that I would never do something like that. 
that we're closer to that than we might care to confess. Speaking personally, I've had, I, I, I haven't even started counting because it's so disheartening to me. The number of friends that I have who grew up in the church and who have walked away for one reason or another. And it, it, it breaks my heart when, when I ask about the reasons that they give and the experiences that they've had. And if I sit with that long enough, I realize that there's something in me that comes up that says, well, maybe them, but never me, Lord. <laughs> Here I am, your servant. I would never do something like that. I would never walk away. I would never be tempted to give things up. And the truth is that that's not true. I would. And you would. And what do we do when? And so this is what happens. Peter denies Jesus. And three of the biograph, three of the four biographies of Jesus' life have a bit of they, they give us glimpses on what the, the end of the story between Jesus and Peter looks like. But it's John's biography of Jesus' life that gives us the clearest picture of how this story plays out and, and how it ends. And so John 21, this is, this is what happens. Jesus, after his resurrection, comes and finds Peter and the other disciples, and they are on Peter's fishing boat. So approximately three, four days after Jesus' crucifixion, they have gone back to the thing that they were doing before following Jesus. And Jesus finds them fishing and uh, helps them catch some fish in the story right before this. And then they come to the beach, and Jesus says, hey, let's, let's have some breakfast together. And this is where we pick up. They're, they're sitting around a fire. And when they had finished eating, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And what Jesus is asking specifically is, do you love me more than these disciples? And in this moment... What Jesus is asking Peter is to be honest about the thing that he has been saying all along. Throughout Jesus' ministry, Peter consistently and even pridefully asserted that he was the disciple of all the disciples, that he loved Jesus more than any of the other disciples. And so Jesus says, do you, in fact, love me more than these? In the shadow of Peter's shame, he asks him this question, and Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he's, he's not stepping into the prideful answer here. He's saying, you know, you know that I love you in connection to how I failed to love you. And then Jesus says, feed my lambs. 
And he continues, again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And then a third time, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Then John says, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time. Now, this isn't Jesus sort of pushing the knife in a little bit more, rubbing salt on the wound. The word here is Peter was grieving. Jesus is asking this series of questions for a very specific and important reason. One, Jesus wants to go to the source and the site of Peter's greatest shame. And so G Peter gets in touch with that place in himself as he's looking into the eyes of Jesus. He feels the profound sense of pain, realizing what he was in fact capable of doing. And what Jesus is also doing for Peter is undoing Peter's denial. By asking this question three times, it's like Peter is going to each space where Peter had denied Jesus and saying, do you love me? Yes, okay, that's undone. Do you love me? Yes, that denial is undone. Do you love me? Yes, that denial is undone. He's essentially reversing what has happened. And this is the dynamic of grace and the way that Jesus works in and through our lives is Jesus takes us to the point of our deepest grief and shame and begins to write a new story about us and about ourselves. And this, is matter this, this matters, and this is incredibly good news because all of us in one way or another are going to cross that imaginary line and it's exactly that. It's, 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 it's imaginary. This line of never. And you might be able to even think of that in your own experience. Whether connected to God or to one of God's children or something. Something in you where you have crossed some sort of line. Where we have walked away from Jesus' invitation to follow him. The good news here, my friends, is that when we choose not to follow Jesus, when we choose to walk away, Jesus follows you. So often we talk about our accepting the invitation to follow Jesus, and that is so critically important for beginning and sustaining the life of faith. But what is of equal importance for us to hold tightly and remember daily is that whenever we walk away from Jesus, Jesus follows you into the depths of your shame, into the depths of your de despair, into the reality of your relational 
relational dysfunction, Jesus will follow you into those places so that Jesus can bring you out into the place of his honor. Jesus wants to bring you out of your despair into hope that something new is possible in and through you. Jesus wants to go into your pain. Jesus wants to follow you into your pain so that he can bring you into a place of healing and renewal and revivification. This is, what Je- this is why Jesus wants to follow you so that you can actually truly begin to follow him. And friends, I think a challenge here, but one that moves us towards hope, is that so often we are tempted into believing that we have to have everything figured out in our lives. We've got to have our stuff kind of sorted with God before we can do anything for God, before we can offer anything to anyone who might need something before we can engage in ministry or before we can uh, be a person of love that God calls us to be. But what I think Peter's example teaches us is that the prerequisite for following Jesus faithfully and being used by Jesus and what Jesus would have us do together and individually is failure is need. What we, what we are tempted to believe because of our level of education or our socioeconomic background or experiences is that like this pattern that we're supposed to follow, that we have to check all of these boxes and gain all of these experiences and have this type of education or be this type of person, then we get to move on to the next thing. Then this thing opens up to us. But what Jesus completely inverts all of that. And he says, the thing that qualifies you for following me is what the world would say should disqualify you from anything and everything else. And what you need most is to need me. And where we get mixed up in this is in this question that Jesus asked, do you love me more than these? And I think this is the question that we can ask ourselves each and every day. And the place where we get tripped up most of the time is in not having the thing that we love in the right order. What we're invited to do is have the love of God be the most important and primary thing in our lives. It should be the primary motivator for how we do anything and everything we do. And yet, we are broken, sinful human beings who can't sustain that in everyday ways. And so the question keeps bringing us back to the first and most important thing, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? And this is not in any distorted way of like rank ordering how how you distribute your love. Because when you love God more than anything else, you have more than enough love for everyone else. 
It's not a zero-sum game where all of it goes here and you've got none of it left there. And so what Jesus invites us to is says, do you love me? Well, then feed my sheep. In other words, the, the, Jesus says it elsewhere as love God and love people. The way that you show your love for God is by loving people. And so the invitation for us is to recognize and realize that our deepest need is how we will feed others. When, when we are in touch with and aware of our deep need for God's grace, we cannot help but be drawn towards others who are in need of the same thing and be equipped with the thing that people in need of grace are most hungering for. In order to be a person of grace and love, you have to be aware in every moment of every day of how dependent upon God's grace you are. And when we can do this, we are able to access what the theologian N.T. Wright calls the secret of all Christian ministry. He writes, the secret of all Christian ministry, yours and mine, lay and ordained, full-time or part-time, is the secret, it's the secret of everything from being a quiet back row member of a prayer group or to being a platform speaker at huge rallies and conferences. If you are going to do any single solitary thing as a follower and servant of Jesus, this is what it's built on. Somewhere deep down inside, there is a love for Jesus. And though goodness knows we've let him down enough times, he wants us to find that love, to give you a chance to express it, to heal the hurts and failures of the past, and give you a new work to do. These are not things for you to earn the forgiveness that Jesus offers. Nothing can ever do that. It is grace from start to finish. They are things to do out of the joy and the relief that you are already forgiven. Things that we are given to do precisely as the sign that we are forgiven. Everything in the life of faith, coming to church, reading the scriptures, sharing your life with others, giving your money away, all of these things we get to do as a sign and a symbol of our love for Jesus. And that has the benefit of meeting the needs of people who are also in need of God's grace. So the question is, which of Jesus' sheep are you following and feeding? Is there someone close to you who has wandered far from God? And are you following them? In non-creepy legal ways? <laughs> are you pursuing someone the way that God pursues you? Is there someone on your heart right now that God wants you to reach out to? 
And you don't have to be an expert in counseling. You don't have to be a theological whiz-bang and know all of the arguments or counter-arguments. All you have to know is that what binds you together is your need for grace and the God who has enough grace to heal and restore you and bring you back to life. So the invitation, one invitation, is if, if you have someone who has come to mind for you right now, shoot them a text right now. Give them a call as soon as we're done. Set up a time to meet with them, to listen to them, to hear their story, see what's going on. And in that, you are being a tangible expression of the grace of God to them. You are a way in which God is pursuing them. But then another possibility on an incredibly tangible level, and you can do both of these things, is uh, one way that we get in touch from from the tradition of of our faith, something that we, we tend to overlook in America, is the practice of fasting. It's a way in which a physical hunger is leveraged to put us in touch with a spiritual need. And so, something that you might be able to do this week, to kind of take these words (laughs) literally, is to prepare, one day this week, prepare a sack lunch and give it away. Give it to somebody in need. Give it to a person experiencing homelessness, somebody you know who, who, who might have some sort of need for food. And then you go through that meal without eating so that you experience your own hunger. And from that place of hunger, pray that God would reveal to you or put you in touch with your deep need for grace. Sound good? Friends, the good news is that whenever and however and if ever we walk away, Jesus follows you. So may we follow too. Amen.